Our scripture text this morning is found in Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song because he has done wonderful things. His own strong hand and his own holy arm have won the victory. The Lord has made his salvation widely known. He has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of all the nations. God has remembered his loyal love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Every corner on earth has seen our God's salvation. Shout triumphantly to the Lord all the earth. Be happy. Rejoice out loud. Sing your praises. Sing your praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of music, with trumpets and a horn blast. Sound triumphantly before the Lord, the King. Let the sea and everything in it roar, the world and all its inhabitants as well. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains rejoice out loud all together before the Lord because he is coming to establish justice on the earth. He will establish justice in the world rightly. He will establish justice among all people fairly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this morning we're going to begin, as I just read in, uh, in the psalm, in Psalm 98. And just a hint, the song that we are going through in our Sound Doctrine series a little bit later in the sermon, Joy to the World, is actually from this particular psalm. So this psalm, as we look at it and as we think about it, is, is a psalm of David. So um, we know that in, in the scriptures we have lots of psalms and they are attributed to lots of different people. There are psalms for Asaph. There are psalms of, of, of all sorts of other people. In, and some are, are, are actually said to be of David. And this is one of the, the few that it is said to be of David. Now, there's no way of going back and fact-checking this, and so we have nothing other to assume and to believe than that David wrote this. And it sounds a lot like David, who was a joyful person. And so we can imagine ourselves as we're singing this psalm, as we're um, talking about this psalm. Do I have anything? (laughs) No. All right, you're going to all have to imagine that there's stuff up there that you're seeing because it's not working today. Go figure. So I'm going to put this down and not worry about it. So this is the Psalm of David, uh, David being the king of Israel in the 8th, 9th centuries BCE. Um, and, and this is a psalm called an enthronement psalm. Now, there, there are various different types of psalms in, in the scriptures and in the, in the psalm book. Um, there are what's called royal psalms, there are psalms of lament, and there are enthronement psalms. So, so the, 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 the two types of psalm that we might be looking at is the royal psalm is a psalm that is said and sung about a king. So there are lots of psalm, psalms in the psalms, I'm saying psalms a lot, um, that, are, that talk about basically what, what God can do for the king, who the king might be, how the king might reign, um, but always talking about a, an earthly king who is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem or wherever else it may be. Right, so there might be a, you know, this is how a gracious and wise king acts. This is how a, a good king judges in the nations, etc., etc., etc. But but an enthronement psalm is a particular type of royal psalm. It is a royal psalm because it's speaking about the king, but it's a very particular type because it is speaking about a particular king, and that is not just an earthly king who rules in Jerusalem, but God who is king. God is known as the king of the universe, uh, Melchim. Olam, right? The ruler of the universe. 
God is, is the king who, who rules and who reigns and who is establishing all things and who has say in all things. And so this particular psalm, this enthronement psalm, is a psalm which essentially says God is king. God will come to rule fully and finally. And because of that, be glad. Right? It is a psalm of joy. It is a psalm that calls for rejoicing. It is a psalm that, that calls for the people to rejoice, for Israel to rejoice, and, and indeed the whole world to rejoice because God is king. And, and the psalm starts in a very particular way. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now the question might be, what is wrong with the old songs? Right, I mean, we're, we've been singing a little bit out of out of this today, which is interestingly enough, and and we might say the old songs are great, the old songs are wonderful, but but the psalmist calls for the people to sing to the Lord a new song to to basically insinuate and to talk about and to have the people think about not just a God who acts in the past, right? So so the people of Israel had a lot of of things to sing about in the past, right? Right, so we think about we're in the 8th, 9th century, the, the history of the people of Israel, right? We, we can think of w- way back and we can think of, you know, God delivering the people through the flood with Noah and his family. Uh, the, the people can look back and they can think about how, how God called and chose Abraham and, and brought him out of his homeland and, and promised him a progeny, promised him a future and said, I will make of you a great nation. We can think about that. We can, we can think about like Isaac and Jacob and, and how God had, had rescued the people during famines. We can think about Joseph and how God had, had rescued the people and taken care of them when, when the whole earth was kind of going to Egypt and submissive to Egypt for food. And, and we can think about uh, God acting in the Exodus as, as God brought the people out of, the ex, out of Egypt and, and, and through the Sinai and through the wilderness and into a promised land. Right? There's lots of things that the people could look back on and remember. And for the people of Israel, there were victories in, in war. There were other things going on. And God had shown up over and over and over and over again. There were lots of old songs to sing. And old songs aren't bad. But the psalmist calls the people and says, look at what God is doing here and now. We, we hear elsewhere, like God is, is about to do a new thing. And, and we see in the history of the people of Israel that the prophet's kind of calling the people to look and see what God is doing here and now. That God doesn't just act in the, in the past, but God acts in the present and acts in the future. And, and it's a continual call for the people to remember what God is doing now and renew your rejoicing over a God who wins victory, who triumphs, etc., etc., etc. Now, we don't know the occasion for this particular new song that David calls the people to sing. We're not told. David doesn't, doesn't seek to tell us this is what's going on. This is what God is doing right here, right now. God, you know, brought us victory over the Philistines or whatever. It, he, he just says, sing to the Lord a new song. Presumably the people hearing this would know what, what, what event had happened, what, what victory God had brought. But, but David is drawing them, their attention to it and saying, look what God has done and let us sing about what God has done here in the present, here And now, sing to the Lord a new song, he says. And so we might ask, why? Why do we sing a new song? The psalm says, sing the Lord a new song because God does wonderful things. 
right? He's seeking to to remind the people of this king, this this God whom they serve, who is the ruler of the universe, who, as he says, has acted on their behalf. What he says is he has done wonderful things. His own strong hand and his holy arm have won the victory, he says in verse 1. It's interesting to me as, as we look through this because that word victory it has another meaning that's used in a different place in this psalm. So the word victory is literally salvation. I mean, if you think that's what victory is, right? If, if someone is about to overtake you as, as, an, as an army, right? Victory is salvation. And so when we hear the word victory here, especially in our minds, it's good to think salvation. That, that what, what God is doing is he is bringing the people salvation. It might be salvation from an enemy. It might be salvation um, from the barrenness of the Sinai. It might be salvation from any other thing. But that God works on the behalf of God's people to bring salvation to the earth. And so the psalm is broken up in, in three basic movements, right? So there, there's the first three verses, which is a call to Israel, right? So it's a call to Israel and says, Israel, remember what God has done. Remember that God has shown God's faithful love. That's a theme over this last year. If you've been around, you've heard a lot about God's faithful, steadfast love. That, that God is acting on behalf of, of Israel um, because God has, has chosen this people and chosen to act on their behalf and made covenants and agreements with them. And God continues to act on their behalf to bring salvation, to bring goodness, to bring whatever else it might be. God says to Israel, remember and rejoice at the God who shows God's steadfast love. In fact, he says that that because God has worked in and through Israel, the nations see how God has acted on behalf of this people. Right? So, So he's calling Israel to just remember and to see the scope of what they're involved in. They're involved in the mighty acts of God, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, all this sort of things. And, and that because God has worked in and through them, because God has shown God's faithful love to them, the people outside see this is a way that God has revealed God's righteousness in the eyes of the nations. It's a call in those first three verses for Israel to rejoice because of this. Remember what God has done. Remember how God has chosen you. Remember how God has acted on your behalf in the past and see how God is acting on your behalf in the present. And, and as, as we ought to, given any act of God, the, the most logical response is praise and joy. And so he calls the people to pray, sing a new song to the Lord. But, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the people of Israel, right? It, it's not like this is just for you guys and, and God is working on, on your behalf and it's just good news for you. That, that's, that's a way of thinking of our world like sometimes good news for me isn't good news for you. Or we sometimes think in this, in this ways of thinking that there can't be good news for everyone. But, but what the psalmist reminds the people of in the next three verses is that because God has acted in this way, Because God has chosen this particular people, that's not just good news for them, but it's good news for the nations. And so the psalmist calls the nations to rejoice as well. Since God has remembered his loyal love for Israel, every corner of the earth has seen our God's salvation, he says. 
And so this acting on behalf of one people becomes not just God's pouring goodness into one people to the detriment of everyone else or ignoring everyone else. But the psalmist says that God's acting on behalf of this particular people overflows and is actually intended for the, for the nations as well, for all peoples, and so that all people might rejoice that God is acting. Because what may have started with Israel, God extends to the ends of the earth. And so he says, shout triumphantly, Lord, all the earth. Be happy, rejoice out loud, sing your praises. Right, this is good news. The, the good news that is being proclaimed, the, the new song that is being sung, is good news not just to Israel, but to the entire world. To all the earth and all the people who live in it. And so what, what starts as, a, as an invitation for Israel to sing a new song becomes an invitation for the nations to pick up that song. For God is in the midst of this world. Isaiah says something to this effect. Um, This is the Mike standard version, so you can look it up later. But he basically says, speaking on God's behalf, he says, it is too light a thing for God just to save Israel. It's too small a thing for God just to work on behalf of one particular people. And then he begins to describe how God is not just bringing salvation to Israel, not saying, hey, these are my people and I'm going to use them to beat all you down, but rather these are my people and I'm going to show my glory in and through these people that through them the world might be blessed and know my salvation as well. It's too small a thing for God to work on behalf of just a particular in-group. God is working and bringing salvation to the nations. Again, it started with Israel. But remember, God called Israel and said, through you, I will bless the nations. God wanted Israel not to be this besieged community who felt everyone else was their enemies, but rather to be a community through whom God could bless the nations around so that God in their midst would be good news, not just to some, but to all. And so the psalmist David here takes up and says, right, you know, Israel, you're singing your song, but this is a song that can be sung in any nation. And so he's, he's inviting the nations to join in. This, this includes you. This, this act of God's salvation includes you. It's, it's not just us. It's, it's all of us together as we sing the song of God's mighty salvation and we begin to see God enthroned as king, not just king of Israel, but king of the universe. But where things really get crazy is that David doesn't stop with people. And I know it's poetic that he's, he's using this poetic device, but, but, but David, he, he says, okay, all the nations join in song that God is great, that God is good, that God is acting for the, the salvation of God's people and indeed for the salvation of all the earth. But David says, it doesn't just end with people. And so he calls creation it to join in the song. Creation itself, and I know it's a poetic device, but it's pretty cool. But David is saying something here, that that God's work, that, that God as king is not just good news for Israel, and it's not just good news for people. It is good news for the entirety of creation, for God is king, not just of people, but over the 
the world. God has created and sustains people and all things. And when God rules, humanity flourishes. When God rules, creation flourishes. When God rules, everything is as it should be. Right? So he calls the hills to rejoice. And and he calls the seas to roar. He, he calls the rivers to clap their hands. And, and, and in so doing, he says, guess what? When you're hearing these things in the world, as you hear the river go by, it's the rivers giving creation, just giving glory to God for the God who creates and sustains. He calls creation itself to join in. Because when God rules... Everything is as it should be. When we submit to the rule and to the reign of God, everything is as it should be. And it is good news for all of creation. And so verse 9 says this. Because he is coming to establish justice on the earth, he will establish justice in the world rightly. He will establish justice among the people, among all people, fairly. It's interesting reading this as David writing it because it's one king speaking about the rule of another. It's one king speaking about the rule of the king whom he follows. But David writes to the people that that when God rules, we see justice rightly. When God rules, God will establish justice fairly. Because we see lots of proximate kingdoms and kings in our world, and and they exert justice to an extent, but we would not always say fairly. Some intentionally, some not so intentionally. But God's rule is good news for all people because God's rule is right rule, is just rule, is righteous rule. Now, I don't know if David would go so far as to say that his rule wasn't. I would question that. I would say we haven't seen right rule on this earth. Unless, of course, we look at Jesus, who would be the only righteous ruler we have seen. But David calls all of creation to say, guess what? God is king, and when God is king, things are right. Things are as they should be. God, who is king, makes decisions righteously and justly. Sometimes we get it wrong, I think David might say. But God doesn't get it wrong. And so God's rule is good news for all because God does not preference one people over another. God doesn't look at things and God is not prejudiced by by all the sorts of things that we're prejudiced by, either intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or unconsciously. God rules rightly. And so it is good news for Israel, for all people, and indeed for all of creation. It is good news. And of course, when we read this particular text in light of Jesus, we see that it is good news to all. 
And it's because of a Christian reading of this text that we have the song Joy to the World. So, so just some background, okay? Joy, Joy to the World was written by um, a famous English playwright, or playwright, uh, hymn writer, um, Isaac Watts. So Isaac Watts, if you were to open a hymnal that's on your, you'd see many, many songs in our hymnal by Isaac Watts. Uh, and it was set to music by, um, some would say, uh, George Friedrich Handel. He didn't write music for it, but some of the music sounds like Handel, um, but arranged probably by a guy named Loyal Mason. Okay, so those are just some, some basic facts. Again, Isaac Watts wrote the, wrote the music, or wrote the song. <laughs> wrote the song, or poem as it was, as most songs start off as. Um, so, so he wrote it because basically Isaac Watts wanted to recover um, the Psalms for worship in the Christian church. Recover is probably the wrong word. But he says, we have all these psalms that give praise to God, and, and, and they're good, but, but how might we utilize those in order to focus our minds on God, yes, but also Christ who reveals God. So he was very, very particular in saying we ought to read the psalms sort of through a Christian lens, with the lens of Christ. And particularly in worship, as we sing them and as we use them, we ought to use them as a way of pointing us towards Christ. Now, there might be the biblical scholar in him who said we might study them and know that they're not all about Jesus, but we're Christians. And so what reveals God reveals Christ. And and so he he, he wrote this psalm to be used in worship. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) To be used in worship in, in, in his churches and any churches. So again, they might see these particular psalms in light, not simply of a God who does great things, but a God who has particularly revealed God's self in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. It should be noted that this was not originally a Christmas song. Um, some of the stuff I read said he was a pretty staunch Puritan and they didn't celebrate Christmas. And so it probably wasn't a Christmas song. In fact, the, the psalm actually is meant to point towards sort of the end, right? The final enthronement of Jesus Christ when Christ comes in his kingdom and in his fullness. Right, right? so in, in, in Isaac Newton's mind as he is writing this, this is more of the picture that's in his head. Right? The, the Christ of, of revelation, the Christ who comes and is enthroned above all, to whom all creation worships. The, the, the Christ who comes in power and in glory at the end of all things to restore all things, to make all things new, right? And, and to sit on the throne and judge the nations forever. This is what Isaac Watts is thinking. He is not thinking this. He is thinking this as he writes this song. But as so much often happens in art, um, it did not go the way Isaac Watts originally planned it, right? Because this song is oriented towards a future and final reign of God, right? It is joyful. It is triumphant. It is very, very much what we would call realized. That is, Christ reigns and rules now, and this is what it looks like. And in that vein, I'd like to read this particular song for you. And think of it, try at least to disassociate. I mean, it's going to be hard because we've got Christmas all up here, but think of, try to think about, try to disassociate from Christmas at the moment and try to think about this in the terms that perhaps Watts would have originally intended it. Okay? 
So you may have to close your eyes. Maybe you want to focus on that slide. I don't know. But hear these words of this song. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. He rules the world, or excuse me, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to, there it is. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love and the wonders of his love. Again, as we hear those words, we, we please try to hear them at least at first in the terms that, that Watts wrote them. He is looking forward to the day when Christ comes in his fullness. And he echoes these words of the Psalms. You, 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 I hope you heard the echoes of this Psalm because this is his rewriting of it. Right? Joy to the world, not just God's people. Joy to the world, for the Lord has come. Right? He rules the world with truth and grace. No more let sin and sorrow grow. You hear those words, this triumphalism, this realization of God's full and final kingdom as it is embodied in the rule and in the reign of Jesus Christ. And, and Watts does what the psalmist does, right? He invites us to sing along with him. He invites us to, 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 to join in the chorus and he invites the world and even creation itself to join in the song of the God who reigns and who rules. <clears throat> it's a very triumphant song. But, but for me, this takes on different meaning as we hear it as a Christmas hymn. Because if this is what was in his mind when he wrote it. As we hear it as a Christmas song, joy to the world, the Lord has come. This is how we see it. Those are two very different pictures, are they not? Christ on the throne, surrounded by the angels, surrounded by those crazy looking creatures. Christ triumphant. I like this picture because he's got the whole world in his hands. I don't know if you noticed that. (laughs) Right? He's got the scepter. He's on the gold throne. All creation knows and acknowledges Christ is king. I hear this version of the song different than I hear this one. No one doubts that this person is a king. Is there any doubt what the artist is trying to portray here? Christ is king. But when we sing this as a Christmas song, I like it because it's subversive. It's easy to say this Christ is king. It's much harder to say this Christ is king. When we sing joy to the world for the Lord has come. Oh, there it is. (laughs) It takes on a new meaning when we're talking about a little baby. Someone vulnerable, someone small, someone born out of the way in a manger. It's subversive. It's saying something about the kingdom of God that is in our midst. It's saying 
that we are a people of faith because this is what we see now. That's a future reality. We acknowledge it, we proclaim it, but this is where we are now. It's not realized quite yet. We've talked in the last couple weeks and started this whole series with hope. This idea that we are a people of hope, for we live in an already, we believe Christ has come, but we don't see the fullness of God's kingdom yet. We live in this in-between time, this time of indecision, a time of hope where we believe in the word of God while looking for its final consummation in its fullness. Walking again through, going, coming back to the song. If I, if I asked you to hear it the first time as we saw Christ as the enthroned king, I, I want you to listen to this song again with this picture in your minds. I want you to hear the words again as I read them and see if the picture in your mind changes. Joy to the world for the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and with grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. When we take what is a song about God of the universe written by, by David long before Jesus was really even thought of much. I'm not sure people thought in terms of God became flesh and a baby. It changes our meanings as we look, as we look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. God enthroned, powerful, just working for God's ends always, powerfully, victories obvious. But we sing about Christ when we sing this song. And so when we sing a song, we sing a song about a powerful and enthroned king, but one who comes and acts differently than we might expect from a powerful and enthroned king. David, sort of the prototypical king in Israel, right? He was sung about and he was lauded because of his prowess in war. It was said of David, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. That is what made David great in the eyes of the people, at least. And yet, we sing about Christ. It's not sung of Christ, right? Christ has killed his ten thousands. It is sung of Christ that Christ laid down his life for the sake of the world. Truly, we serve a different kind of king. So when we sing about him and we call the earth to rejoice, we call the earth to rejoice, not about a king who is victorious in battle, but one who shows us the very nature of God in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. 
shows us what just rule is. How God of the universe enacts God's rule among people through this person of Jesus Christ born in vulnerability in nowhere, Jerusalem, or in nowhere, Israel, who lived a life far from the centers of power. And when he went to the centers of power, it didn't go well for anybody. They got in fights, conflicts. He turned over tables. Who ultimately, in that center of power, met his death at the hands of his own people, sentenced to death by the Romans. A God who reveals God's rule in this way. This is a different way of looking at things. This is why I think that that we get this verse, right? No more let sin and sorrow grow and our thorns infest the ground. That's not in the original text. Watts is reminding us that the salvation that we sing about, this great new thing that God is doing is so mind-blowing and so earth-shattering that that it's not just about restoring a people to rule or restoring a person to rule or making one nation great, but rather delivering in one act of salvation all people that all who call in the name of the Lord might be saved. He comes to make his blessings known not just locally, not just regionally, but far as the curse is found. What talks about this, that, that this is not just a renewal of a single person or, or the rule of a nation. This is the renewal of all things in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has done great things. And this is for the salvation of the world and indeed all of creation. Paul writes in in Romans that creation itself groans for God's work to be completed in God's people. A creation that has been subject to decay groans for God's will to fully and finally be made known as as God brings all things back to himself. It is good news, not just to me and not just to you and not just to us on the inside, but to all the earth, to all peoples and to all of creation. Surely this is cause for joy, is it not? God has come and God has given us Christ to make all things new and to restore all things to God's own self. And he does so in revealing God's self in a baby born in Bethlehem. Reveals God's own self most fully in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as God submits God's own self to death for the sake of a humanity that has turned its back on him. And in so doing, in that death and subsequent resurrection, makes life available for me, for you, for us on the inside, and for indeed all people everywhere who would call on the name of the Lord. Surely this is good news. But we are constantly reminded 
And there's a reason that we as Christians do not read the Psalms in the same way that David may have heard it or wrote it. Because we believe that God has revealed God's self, the king of the universe, in Christ. And we believe that it is in Christ, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, and in that alone that we might have life. These are the extents to which God has gone, that we might be God's own people. And so for me, the most poignant and accurate way of giving thanks and praise to God for these God's gifts is by celebrating communion together. For, for of all the acts that we do as the church, for me, this one most simply and most powerfully shows us that our life, the very bread and juice we drink, the very things that give us nourishment, that give us life, are indeed the body and blood of Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. We are restored to relationship with God because of what Christ has done on the cross. And this should be for us a great source of joy. One of the names for communion is Eucharist, which is a Greek word that basically means we give thanks. To give thanks to God for what God has done, restoring us and indeed all of creation to God's self. the communion supper was instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a sacrament which proclaims his life, his sufferings, and his sacrificial death. It proclaims his resurrection and also the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. The communion supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present with us and to us by the Spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Jesus Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sin and believing to Christ and salvation, for salvation, are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. We come to this table today that we might be renewed in life and in salvation and that we might be made one in the Spirit. We come to this table today that we might together rejoice that the Lord is king and has acted for our and the whole world's salvation in Jesus Christ. And so in the unity of our faith, we proclaim together that Christ has died and Christ has risen and that Christ will come again. And so we pray. Holy God, we gather here at this, your table, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He ate with sinners. He established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And so we live in the hope of his coming again. We remember that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
And so we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to God in praise and in thanksgiving. And we ask that God, you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and these your gifts that we might be for the world, the body and blood of Christ. So that we might be your people who proclaim in joy and in faith, Lord, that you have worked on behalf of your crowd, your world. By your salvation, make us one in Christ one with each other and in the ministry of Christ to the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen. Uh, as we do communion and celebrate together, once again, I'd just ask that come down this aisle, receive the elements here, and then go back to your seats this way. Uh, that way we'll avoid traffic jams. Um, and please, as you receive the elements, will you please take them and hold on to them? And once we have all been served, we will partake together. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. Come and receive his grace today.